Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. In verse 19, It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, that is, of course, in Christ, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies, in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This was our condition. We were dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2.1. And in that condition, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners in Romans 5.8. And he made us to be one with the love of God. And he reconciled us unto himself. Where does condemnation come in? Where does guilt come in? Where does any form of negativity come in? That in our worst possible condition, and dead in sins is the absolute worst possible condition. You can't get any worse than dead. When we were in this place, he reconciled us to himself. That was the plan of the ages. That was the love of God, the mercy of God. The goodness of God being revealed through the authority of grace toward us. That he reconciled not just us, but it says all things to himself. Because through Adam, sin came into the world. The world was corrupted by sin. And now, because of Christ, everything is reconciled back to him. And it's reconciled through two things. It's reconciled through the blood and through the cross. It says there in verse 20, He made peace through the blood of His cross. So there are two things necessary and sometimes we don't really know how to put those two things together. There is a school of thought that says the blood is not literal, that the blood is spiritual and it simply refers to spiritual death. Now, this is not correct, of course. The blood is literal, and the blood has a very powerful component. But really, how many Christians live in some form of condemnation? How many Christians live in some relationship or remembrance of a past sin, perhaps past events, certain negative things, perhaps, or for that matter, Positive things. In some people's case, it does happen that although they have forsaken sin, 
the memory of that sin is not something that they regret. The memory of that sin is something that still tantalizes them. In truth, if they were honest, they would say they wouldn't mind going back into it if it wasn't contrary to God, contrary to the ways of God, contrary to salvation. And sometimes people have deep regret about sin in the past. Sometimes people have deep wounds, whether they were caused by sin or something else. Sometimes people have deep guilt that they carry into their life with God. And none of these things have a place. We have to understand that the blood and the cross are real. We have to understand that the blood and the cross are efficacious. We have to understand that the blood and the cross are personal. It's not a theological truth. It's a practical truth. It's a practical reality that Christ died on the cross for us. It's a practical reality that the blood was shed for us. These are things that have profound personal impact. And in order to enjoy and receive the full benefit of that profound personal impact, we do need to understand how it works. So many things in the Bible are so meaningful and so efficacious in the individual life but sometimes people don't really get their full effect because they don't recognize how it works. There is a school of thought also that says, well, these things are mysteries and God simply does them. There is no canned solution. No, there isn't a canned solution, nor am I claiming there is one. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a certain way that things work. For example, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you ask, you will receive. You have numerous examples like this where God tells us how it works. If you want to receive, ask. You don't have because you don't ask. The Word of God says that if you want righteousness, you live by faith. There's a certain way that works. Well, if I'm to enjoy and receive all the personal benefits, and those benefits are numerous, of what God has done for me, then it really helps if I understand the spiritual mechanics, if you will, of these things. What's really kind of astonishing to me is that even within the Christian world, there's a lot of people who are generally miserable. Certainly there are many who are not. Certainly there are many who have great joy in their life. Thank God for that. But still, there are those who are like that, who are miserable, who are not experiencing the fullness and the richness of life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you super abundantly in John 10.10. 10. And so, if I'm a Christian who's not experiencing super abundant life, 
then I have to ask myself, if Jesus came for this purpose and I'm not experiencing it, what is it that I need to do? What is it that needs to take place in order for me to receive what he died on the cross to give me? He's not going to withhold it. If he didn't withhold his own son, how much more shall he now freely with him give us all things? If that's not my experience, then I have to ask myself, where is the schism, the separation? What is it that's happening that I'm not experiencing this? Now, that can be varied in its reasons. And I'm not here to talk about the various reasons at this particular time. But what I am saying is the spiritual mechanics of something will help me to trust it and will help me to understand how to utilize what God has given me. He said that we're reconciled by the cross and by the blood. This reconciliation to God has tremendous consequences on an individual level. I've seen people who are delivered from serious drug abuse, heroin, for example. This one fellow I used to know before he was saved was a heroin addict. He got saved and all of a sudden didn't even desire heroin, no withdrawal, nothing. This was very personal to him. There were other people with other types of issues in their lives that they needed deliverance and God delivered them in glorious ways because he loved them. God's not interested in people being miserable or in despair of some sort. God doesn't want people being unhappy. God doesn't want people not enjoying their life with him. God wants you to receive the fullness of the benefit, including the personal benefits, the thinking benefits, the emotion benefits, the self-image benefits, all of the benefits that God has for us. He wants us to receive and enjoy all of them. And ultimately, all of them start with this the blood and the cross. Because it was by the blood and the cross that we have been reconciled to him. Those people who think that it's not literal blood, that's a pretty significant error because the importance of the blood cannot be overestimated. Likewise, it's not all the blood. The cross must take place. Because if I think it was just the blood, then I can also underestimate the importance of the cross. But these two things worked together. It's the blood of the cross. You cannot separate the cross from the blood, nor can you separate their effects toward us, but they are different, albeit they work in tandem. 
In Numbers 18.17, the firstling of a cow, or the firstling of a sheep, or the firstling of a goat, you shall not redeem. And this is, of course, talking about the Levitical law and the instructions about the various sacrifices that were to be made. He said, these firstlings you will not redeem. They, the firstlings, are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood upon the altar and shall burn their fat for an offering made by fire for a sweet savor unto the Lord. These firstlings were a very clear picture of the Savior. In Romans 8.29, the Savior is a firstling, if you will. It says the firstborn, and that's what a firstling is. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And he was the one who also was holy. And he is the one whose blood was shed. And he was the one who became the sacrifice. But he was holy. Now we know that the just died for the unjust. But also, the holy died for the unholy. We are not holy apart from him. A person who is in their natural state is living outside of the holiness of God. Holiness for us is a very challenging thing because we don't have the capacity for holiness. So holiness in us becomes the love of God in us. Because the love of God in us brings us to all the things that holiness actually is. For example, if you love you fulfill the law. If you love, you have the character of God. If you love, you will manifest the goodness of God. The things that holiness is, as far as we are concerned, are not an outward manifestation, but a heart condition. So the heart becomes holy, and the way that the heart becomes holy is because we know the one who is holy. And that holiness is imparted to us through the one who is holy. Now, I don't care what your past is. I don't care if you are someone who has had a devastatingly sinful past or somebody who has been very self-righteous in your upright, perhaps religious upbringing. You're moral or immoral, it doesn't make any difference. Because all of us have sinned, and whether our sin was one of self-righteousness or one of some kind of failure, whether we ate from the good side of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the evil side of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we still ate from the same tree, Satan's tree in Ezekiel 31.18. Therefore, we still have a need for our Savior. The holy died for the unholy. This is huge. Because this is how we get saved. But not only saved, this is how we get delivered. But not only delivered, this is how we enter into the life of God. But not only enter into the life of God. 
This is how we experience the fullness of who He is as we are one with Him. It's really not just about our position with Him. If Christ died to give me a position with Him, in other words, if Christ died to make me accepted in the Beloved, but I never get to experience the benefits, it's really only half a salvation. Christ didn't just die to take me to heaven. That's where it starts. It's not where it finishes. Christ wants me to experience all the benefits now, here, in time, on earth, just as I am, to be able to receive from Him exactly where I am, exactly how I am. And this does require the cross and the blood. We were created for a purpose. The cross and the blood are reflections of that purpose. They're actually the vehicle that fulfills the purpose. In Isaiah 62, in the B part of verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You were created to be the bride of Christ. He made himself a bride. Now mind you, in Psalm 119.89, the word of God is forever settled in heaven. That means the purpose of God, the counsel of God, the plan of God is eternal. The plan of God and the purpose of God and the counsel of God existed prior to the existence of things like time and space. They are an inherent part of God because His name is Word of God and the Word did become flesh in John 1.14. But they are forever settled in heaven. They are eternal. They are established in the eternal realm. They actually establish eternity. They are the basis of everything and they are the heart and the mind of God. This is eternal. So when we're saying that God wanted a bride and there was a plan for a bride, why did he want a bride? Because in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for a man to be alone. And in Genesis 1.27, man is created in the image of God. We are a type. For God. God talks about us, but in some of the things that he says about us, he also is teaching us about himself. There was one God, he was alone. He was love. He wanted a manifestation of that love, and a manifestation of love comes to a bride. So God planned, created, and then executed the fullness of the plan in time so that the manifestation of love could take place toward a bride. That bride is the born-again believer. Now, everybody is intended to be the born-again believer. Not everybody is, but everybody is intended to. Some people say that's exclusive. 
while in truth it is the most inclusive invitation in earth history. That all may come, that whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may become the bride. Whosoever will may receive from God. Whosoever will. This is a huge invitation. It's done for absolutely everybody. It is why we are created. Now, I'm not going to get into how all that worked. We've talked about that so many times already. Suffice to say that everything that exists, exists for that one purpose. That God be able to manifest love and the one he manifests it to, he calls his bride. In Philippians 2.8, Christ was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient there is not, yes sir, I will do that. Obedient there is actually submissive. So it's not really a great word, obedient, for this particular passage. It should really read, he humbled himself and became submissive to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. The cross was a must. Without the cross, nothing would happen for us. Now, there are those Christians who give the cross a negative connotation. It's positive so long as it's only referring to Christ. It's negative when it starts to refer to them. When it refers to Christ, they think to themselves salvation, redemption, reconciliation. Yes, all of those things are correct. Yes, this is the cross. But when it's referring to them, they think of things like self-denial, asceticism, suffering, things that are actually negative. They are incorrect in saying that. That is not what the cross is about. If you think that your difficulties or the things you suffer with are your cross, you don't understand what a cross is. Those are not your cross. Those are actually your promotion. But those are not your cross. It's not the way that the cross works. The purpose of the cross primarily is not punishment. It's not, as some people think, the wage of sin being death. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But in Ephesians 2.1, the sinner is already dead. They've already gone through that death and it had nothing to do with the cross. Some people think that's the penalty. The cross is not a penalty. Christ went to the cross not so much to pay a penalty. Yes, he died the just for the unjust. Yes, in the worldly sense, the Romans were implementing a penalty, but it really, from divine perspective, was not a penalty. He simply used the political and judicial situation in the land at the time to carry out the plan of God 
But what penalty? Even Pilate said that he found nothing wrong in the man. There was no penalty to be had. People will say, well, it's our penalty. He took it on to himself. It's not about penalty. We're already dead apart from him. It's a provision. It's the solution. It's our hope. It's not our penalty. Nobody goes to jail and says, this jail sentence is my great hope. Yet Jesus would not be budged from the cross. He set his face like a flint to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane when it appeared like he was going to be killed prematurely by a severe demonic attack that was so intense he was perspiring blood and he says, Father, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, your will not mine be done. That wasn't about the cross. That was about what was happening in Gethsemane because Satan was trying to kill him prior to him dying on the cross. The cross was purposed, as a matter of fact, the cross was established as the very first thing that took place in Revelation 13.8. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, from the foundation, the laying down of the structural foundation in the original language was the slain lamb. The cross was not a negative. People in Rome, people in Jerusalem, in the Roman world back then, yes, they used it as penalty, but God was not using it as a penalty. God is not punitive. Sometimes people think that folks go to hell, those who do, as a punishment. God is not punitive. God doesn't punish. God may chastise, but that's to get us to grow. God does not punish. That's not the way that God's justice system works. God is not punitive. Sometimes things happen and people say, what did I do wrong? God is not punitive. It has nothing to do with what you did wrong or right. God is not punitive. In Ephesians 2.15 there is the purpose of the cross. So as to create in himself one new man from the two. There was us, there was Christ, we were separate. There was us, there was God, we were separate. He created in himself one new man from the two, making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God, both Christ and us, in one body through the cross. The cross was the place where we became the 1 Corinthians 12.27 body of Christ. Do you understand that at the cross you became the body of Christ? That at the cross you became the new creature? It's not something that you have to strive your way into. It's something that you already are. 
It's not something that you perform. It's something that God has done for you. Recently I saw a Christian program on television. I'm not going to get into which one or who it was. And I like the program. I like the people. I think they have a very sincere and generally very productive program and it does a lot of good. But at the same time, there was this one person on there and you can fairly easily tell, although they are very sincere, that they are maintaining an image. And I don't know what this person is like outside of that. But based on some of the things they have said, it's clear that they are maintaining an image. That's fine. They need to grow and at least they're conscious of being a good testimony of Christ and that has value in itself. I'm not criticizing them. But nevertheless, they're maintaining an image. They're very aware of it. And perhaps if I was on TV, I would be that aware of it also. I don't know. But we don't have to maintain this. We choose to live in it or we choose not to live in it, but it's ours regardless. It's not something that we produce. It's not something that we perform. It's not something that we strive into. And it's not something that we can affect its reality. We are the new creature. This is a done deal. We are one with Christ. This is a done deal. This is a done deal. This is not something that we affect in any way whatsoever. It is reality. Whether I accept it or not, that's another story. Whether I experience it or not, that's also another story. Whether I trust it or not, that's another story. Regardless of any of that, it is a finished work. It is a done deal. I can't do anything to undo the fact that I am a new creature. Now, if I choose not to live in that, if I choose not to glorify God, if I choose to live in sin, if I choose against God, then yes, He will discipline me because He chastises the ones He loves, not out of punishment, but out of growing. He makes us grow. He teaches us correctly. He's a good Father. But it doesn't change the fact of what He's done. At the cross, we were made to be one new man with Christ. That is the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. In Romans 5.10, this took place while we were yet his enemies. In Ephesians 2.1, dead in sins. We were his enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Now, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
When I accept the cross and all that the cross is, what he has accomplished, not as a penalty for sin, but as a provision for the sinner. That's the real way to look at the cross, not as a penalty for sin, but as a provision for the sinner. We shall be saved by his life because of the cross. In Galatians 2.20, the cross is what brings me into the fullness of the life of God. We have a natural life and it doesn't work for us. There are people who try to live in that natural life on a regular basis and they wonder why is this not working for me? Because you are living or trying to in the natural life, in the natural man. The natural man has no place with God. I try to be a Christian in that type of a situation in something that has no place with God. And this doesn't work. But in Galatians 2.20, I'm not meant to live the natural life. I'm meant to live the life of God. That's what the cross does for me. I take up a cross simply means I enter into the life of God. Now this is done by faith. Faith is not some abstract, arbitrary, ethereal phenomenon. Faith is a very tangible, very powerful, very forceful reality. Faith can change many things in very dramatic fashion. I remember years ago, there was a young woman who was deathly ill. She had a lung infection and the doctors had her on life support and they told the parents she cannot survive this infection. And they asked the parents to decide when they wanted to remove her from life support. And They picked a day, they gave her about a week to fight. But the doctors told them, this was fatal, this cannot be survived. I saw her, her skin color was bizarre. She looked like a copper penny in her skin color. And her skin looked like leather, similar to a leather coat. The nurse was pulling out a liter of blood from her lungs at a time, each lung. The young woman was dying and she was dying quickly. And I was teaching a class and I asked at the beginning of the class that we pray for this young woman. And we did. At the end of the class, my secretary got a text from the young woman's fiancé that she had been completely healed. 
They were taking her off life support. She was breathing on her own. Everything was restoring to normal. Prayer is powerful. This was not for anything inside of the people that were praying. It was not because anyone was somehow spectacular, super Christian. It was nothing other than we ask our Father. And our Father is kind. And He gave it to us. That's it. But that's the way it goes with God. In order to experience the things that God has for us, we don't have to be super Christians. We can be exactly who we are. And we come to a Father who is kind. And He desires to give to us. Whether it's the healing of someone or ourselves or some sort of a provision, or maybe someone is lonesome. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what. We come to the Father and we ask. And He meets the need because we have asked and He does it because He is kind. When you come to the cross, you're embracing the life that this extraordinarily kind Father desires to give you. It's not difficult. It's release. It's freedom. It's joy. There's no element of asceticism. There's an element of life. That's what it's about, life. And this extraordinarily kind God of ours gives it to us in abundance at the cross. In 1 Peter 2.24 Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. The word healed is Yaomai, and it means to be made whole, to be freed from sins or error, and to bring about salvation. He bore our sins on his body on the tree on the cross that we having died to sin because remember at the cross we became one person with him when he died we died when he rose again we rose again this was the provision for our oneness this was the provision for our life He went to death because we were dead, so he met us where we were. And it was in death where we were that he met us and made us his body, so that we could live. And because the wages of sin is death, 
the death that came after the fall, and that death has been passed through our biological DNA, the systems within our body. It's part of our physical members, our physical body. That has been passed on to us in our genetics. And this is why we are dead, because the genetics are pre-programmed for death. They are no longer programmed for life. They are programmed for death. It's almost bizarre biologically that a person's development takes place into their mid-twenties until they are fully developed in every aspect, yet death itself starts to take over the person at around age 18. So we develop and die. And this is genetic. This is our biological makeup. We develop and die. This is where God met us. That's why it had to be in death. Because we were death. He had to meet us where we were. He could not meet us any other place. It had to be through death. But yet at the same time, there was this huge benefit in that. And as much as when we died with him, we did not die alone. We died as the one new man with God. And that means that death could not hold us because we were now his body, one person with him. And when he rose again, we rose with him. Hence the life of God of Galatians 2.20 that is now our life. By his stripes we were made whole. By his stripes we were made alive. Now here's the thing about that death. It's on the cross where the blood was shed. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus was not saying, this is like my life. This is not like my death. This is not what's happening spiritually. This is not some analogy, metaphor. He says, this is the blood of the cross. The blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood was shed for the remission of sins. Now in Revelation 1.5, the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. In Psalm 103.12, the blood of Christ removes sin as far as the east is from the west. And that does necessarily mean, according to physics, space-time. Space as well as time. Sin is removed from both. But why can the blood do that? My blood, if it shed on something, doesn't do that, but his did. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Well, that word atonement, the literal meaning is to make one. It's a reconciliation. It literally means to make one. Atonement literally is at one meant. 
and its real meaning. So the blood was shed for at one moment for our souls, so that we could be one with God. The Holy Spirit enters us, the blood of Christ cleanses us, and it makes us one with our God, the Holy Spirit. So now we have the fact that we are one body with Him, and we are now one soul with Him, because the blood is an atonement for our souls. You cannot be one body and two souls. You have to be one body and one soul. The Holy Spirit inside of us unites to our soul. And this is our at one -ment. In Romans 3.25, Christ, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. This is a soul issue. Faith is a soul issue. Now, it had to be through faith, because in Romans 14.23, anything else would be sin. So, it had to be through faith. It had to be through the one thing that will stand in the presence of the blood of Christ because the blood removes anything that is sin. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not faith is sin. That means nothing but faith can stand in the presence of the blood. It has to be through faith in His blood. In order to be able to stand with the blood. The blood is extremely powerful, but so is faith. They are not opposites, they are not against each other, they work together. But if it wasn't faith, it would not work together with the blood, and hence the blood would remove it. This is why it's literal blood, because it's only the literal blood that can bring that at-one-ment atonement. And it doesn't work just on the body, it works on the soul. Now, it made us to be one soul with Him, and then it cleansed us from our sins. As we were the body of Christ, He took the sins of the world on His body, the blood spilt out on that body as it hung on the tree, that body was us, and the blood of Christ cleansed us from all sin. If it wasn't for the blood, Christ would have died in our sins and we would have had no hope. But it's a finished work. In other words, there was never a time when this wasn't real for you. Whether you experience it or not, for that matter, whether you believe it or not, it's not relevant. It is reality. And it's objective. Because God has made it so. What are your fears? What are your regrets? What are your insecurities? What is your guilt? What are your problems? You're one person, one soul with God. 
cleansed by the blood made into the new creature. Old things are passed away. And indeed everything has become new. The blood has removed the old and the cross brings in the new. We need both. I can't try to live in the new and yet retain the old. I can't get rid of the old without living in the new. It's both. And we do it by faith. Because faith is the only thing that can stand. In Matthew 16.24, Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Mark 10.21, Jesus beheld the rich young ruler, and he loved him, because in Jeremiah 31.3, that's how God draws people to himself. And he said to him, one thing you lack. Because the rich young ruler desired God, was faithful to the law, fulfilled it to the best of his ability, but yet he knew there was something missing and Jesus told him, there is one thing that you lack. Go your way, sell whatsoever you have and give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come take up your cross and follow me. Now, in the case of the rich young ruler, he had what he needed, except he couldn't deny himself. Denying yourself doesn't have to mean you sell all that you have. That's not what it's referring to. That was what was holding him back into self-orientation. A lack of God-orientation, and that was his problem because of his riches, and other people have different things that can cause the same problem, but a lack of God-orientation results in a lack of love. Because if I'm not oriented toward God, I'm not oriented toward love. And it results in a lack of that Galatians 2.20 life of God that becomes our life. So when I live in self-orientation, I'm repudiating the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the gentleness, the kindness of God, all that God has done for me, the very oneness that God is trying to get me to live in, to bring my way to get me to experience so that I can have complete fulfillment and contentment and joy, that very thing is what self-orientation eliminates from the individual life. So he says first, get rid of that self-orientation. That's what deny yourself means because as long as that self-orientation is there, you won't be able to enter any of the rest of it. It's a closed door that God is trying to open. 
If that door will open, then take up your cross. Take up the life of God. Take up the freedom that you have from the past, from sin, from problems, from people, from all the negatives in life, from self-righteousness, from having to try to maintain or produce something yourself. And then you can follow me. In Luke 14.27, whoever does not bear his cross cannot come after me. He cannot be my disciple. That's the reason why in Genesis 3.1 in the Garden of Eden, Satan who had entered into the serpent said to Eve, in the original language, does it make any sense to you, Eve? Does it make any sense to you? There's the self-orientation. Does it make any sense to you? Think apart from the word of God. Don't live in faith. Live in self-orientation. Live in natural evaluation. Live in natural thinking. Forget what God has said. Does it make any sense to you that you should be able to eat of any tree of the garden but not the best tree? Now, of course, he didn't tell her that that tree of knowledge of good and evil was his tree. And that was part of the subtlety. And with that, he shut her out of the life of God. And then they ate from the tree and the first thing that came was separation from each other at first through making fig leaves. All of a sudden, things that were never problem before were problems now. And then they separated themselves from God. And then they blamed. And then God said, Okay, now here you are. Now the plan starts to work. Now the promise is given in Genesis 3.16. And the Lamb will be slain as He already was, but now it will take place in time as it was established in eternity. And you will experience something through choice. That there is a cross and there is blood. And it's offered to you to live in. But it's a choice. There's the life of God and then there's the oneness with Him. There's oneness with Him in the body and there's oneness with Him in the soul. And it's a choice. To believe so that you can receive. And some will believe and some will not. But it is a choice. It is finished. It has been given to you. And it's up to you to make the choice to enjoy the 
fullness of its benefit. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me so I can have eternal life with you. Amen.